Hey, Molly, did you bite the bullet and purchase a new phone yet? No. I've been considering it, but I've only had this one for about a year. Oh, yeah? And how's it holding up? I'm not going to lie. It's already moving slower, and the battery is dying really quickly. It's frustrating, but I guess that just happens with these things. Well, some conspiracy theorists might tell you that's all by design. Oh, come on, Carter. I know we speculate about evil corporate overlords on this show all the time, but they aren't actually out to hurt their own customers. Are they? Well, what if I could prove to you that some of them were? That back in the 1920s, a plot was hatched by a secret cabal of global businessmen who wanted to make products worse. And you, me, and every consumer on the planet continue to fall for their twisted scheme today. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today, we're exploring a strange and nefarious phenomenon that affects all of us, practically every second of our lives. In the winter of 1924, several businessmen gathered at a top-secret meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. They called themselves the Phoebus Cartel. Their mission? to milk the hard-earned cash from the pockets of customers around the world. They discovered that by designing their products to self-destruct, they could sell more faster. So in this meeting, they ultimately laid the foundation for a practice called planned obsolescence, a way to render everything from electronics to cars to fashion and food obsolete. In this episode, we'll talk about how and why planned obsolescence developed. Then, we'll cover how the practice infiltrated global consumerism throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. And finally, we'll explore two theories. First, that planned obsolescence is a myth, and it's a buyer's greed that drives the market. And second, that planned obsolescence and consumer culture may literally be destroying our planet. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. They don't make them like they used to. It's a phrase we came across often while looking into this story. A story that starts with a light bulb, both metaphorically and literally, and ends with the destruction of our planet. Carter might sound a little melodramatic, but in a way, he's kind of right. To understand the whole picture, we need to jump back about 220 years to when the first electric light was invented. The year was 1802. British chemist Humphrey Davy was hard at work trying to connect wires to a battery and to carbon rods. He was hoping to create the world's first electrically powered light. But the design needed some work. It wasn't the kind of thing that could be packaged and sold to consumers. Not yet, at least. All over the world, inventors were toying with a similar concept— but the first one to the finish line was a 32-year-old inventor in New Jersey. His name, you've certainly heard before, was Thomas Edison. And in 1880, he received a patent for his incandescent light bulb, changing life as we know it. And in more ways than you could imagine. By the early 1900s, lighting had become a competitive marketplace. Companies all over the world were mass-producing their interpretation of Edison's invention and selling the product at high volume. And these initial models lasted a long time, like more than 2,000 hours long. Modern incandescent bulbs typically clock out at less than half the lifetime of 100 years ago. You're probably wondering why that is. Well, lighting companies eventually realized their profit margins weren't great, and they could make a lot more money if they conspired together on one infallible plan. Which brings us to a cold winter night in Switzerland, 1924. It was two days before Christmas. While the rest of the world finished their last-minute shopping, the top dogs of several light bulb companies gathered in Geneva for a secret meeting. These were the head honchos of the industry. Representatives of Osram in Germany, Philips from the Netherlands, and Compagnie de Lampe in France. Other corporate members soon included Hungary's Tungsram, even Tokyo Electric from Japan was involved. In total, at least eight different companies from around the globe joined the group. They might have been competitors, but they shared one giant problem. People weren't buying bulbs fast enough because, well, they'd made their products a little too well. And if they didn't make a change, the lighting industry would suffer. 
So they came up with a plan. They'd shorten the lifespan and diminish the quality of their bulbs. That way, they'd last no more than a thousand hours each. Thus, one of the world's first international cartels was born. They even gave themselves a supervillain-worthy name. The Phoebus Cartel, named after Phoebus, the god of light. It's unclear how frequently the representatives met, but they were serious about this plan. So they established a follow-up auditing system to ensure everyone who worked for them conformed to their goals. Meaning every manufacturer under the cartel's purview had to send samples of their bulbs to a lab for inspection. If the bulb lasted significantly longer than the thousand-hour mark, it failed the test, and they'd be fined. In due time, these inferior bulbs dominated the market. And eventually, the consumer caught on. But the Phoebus cartel was armed with a host of excuses. They claimed the new design allowed for brighter lighting and was more energy efficient. And with nowhere else for the consumer to turn to, light bulb sales increased across the board. Between 1926 and 27, about 335.7 million light bulbs were sold. Four years later, that number jumped to more than 420 million. This practice of product manipulation wasn't exclusive to the lighting industry. All kinds of businesses found themselves hopping aboard the bandwagon. Around the same time, General Motors plotted its own way to drive up automotive industry sales. The mentality at the time, especially for a pricey product like a car, was, if it still drives, why get a new one? Since General Motors had come onto the scene after Ford, they had a harder time breaking into the market. They needed to find a creative way to convince consumers their product was superior. So, they started introducing new colors, new engines, and new cars every single year. While neither the Phoebus cartel nor GM had put a name to this practice yet, it was revolutionary in the world of consumerism. Two industries had found two entirely different ways to increase demand for their goods, one by building their products to break, and the other by convincing the consumer the current models were inferior. And Americans in particular were buying into it with little question, at least until the Great Depression. After the stock market crash of 1929, consumerism came to a standstill. By 1933, one in every four Americans had lost their jobs and were joining queues for breadlines. Buying new light bulbs, let alone new cars, was a pipe dream for many. But a New York real estate broker named Bernard London actually saw consumerism as a way to save the spiraling economy. He took what the Phoebus cartel had done and pushed it a step further, arguing the government should legally require all products to expire, whether they were broken or not. This way, consumers would have to purchase new items and businesses would be forced to make them, stimulating the economy and creating more jobs. London worked on a proposal and even drafted a pamphlet called Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence. 
And with that, he finally put a name to what the Phoebus cartel had ostensibly created, the practice of rendering products obsolete. The proposal was never officially accepted by the government, but that didn't stop other industries from applying London's planned obsolescence idea to their own products, especially as the economy bounced back. In 1940, the chemical company known as DuPont released a synthetic fiber called nylon. The fabric would eventually replace silk as the main component in pantyhose, allowing for longer wear. Women went wild for the sturdier product, and DuPont chemists became the heroes of the fashion industry for a little while. According to the 2010 documentary The Light Bulb Conspiracy, hosiery companies eventually realized they might not be able to sell as many nylon stockings as they could silk stockings. So they reportedly sent their manufacturers back to the drawing board to make those nylon fibers a bit weaker than before. They seemed to be following the Phoebus cartel model. If they were going to increase sales of their products, they needed them to become obsolete. However, there are some sources, like Smithsonian Magazine, that say the return to the drawing board was sparked by World War II. Suddenly, the limited supply of nylon was needed for more pressing wartime materials like parachutes, flak jackets, shoelaces, and hammocks. It may have had nothing to do with selling more stockings at all. Even if that was the case, consumerism seemed to skyrocket after World War II. Many companies followed the GM model of pushing refreshed versions of their products. Industrial designer Brooks Stevens captured the mood when he described planned obsolescence as a way to, quote, instill the desire to own something a little newer, a little better, a little sooner than necessary. This version of the phenomenon would come to be known as psychological obsolescence. And it was a big hit. Suddenly, brands were convincing consumers that it was patriotic to be a frequent shopper. With the growing popularity of the television set, advertisements boasted the shiniest new refrigerator or vacuum cleaner, you name it, alongside the perfect all-American family. Now, merchants weren't just selling products, they were selling status. Owning the latest items became a way to impress the neighbors. At least in the U.S., consumerism equated to being socially elite. And it was all facilitated by the invention of the bank-issued credit card. After 1958, prestige items were even more attainable, especially since they could be paid off slowly. Once computers became commercially available in the 1970s, it was off to the races. Within a couple decades, people were buying and replacing desktops, printers, cell phones, and other hardware to keep up with the fastest, most up-to-date operating systems. There was no stopping the uptick of consumer culture, and it's continued to this day. Everyone wants the newest rendition of everything. Taking all of that into account, you can't help but feel like consumers are being manipulated, that companies have trained us to desire the shiniest, newest thing, whether we need it or not. But is that really the case? If you ask some economists, they'll tell you the only people to blame for planned obsolescence are the consumers, 
themselves. Coming up, is planned obsolescence a figment of the consumer's imagination? I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. While it might sound like an excerpt out of a supervillain handbook, the Phoebus Cartel was no comic book conspiracy. When several representatives from the world's top lighting companies colluded in Geneva, Switzerland, they came up with one of the evilest plots of all time design products to break so consumers had to buy more. We know for a fact that the Phoebus Cartel meeting happened, but even so, most corporations today might argue that the concept they pioneered, later known as planned obsolescence, was only a blip in the consumer history timeline. They'd say big businesses aren't manipulating us to empty our wallets whenever they release something new, because they don't have to. And that brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Planned obsolescence is a myth, and the shoppers' greed is the real problem. Yale professor of finance and economics, Judith Chevalier, is just one person who seems to suggest the great light bulb conspiracy was a one-time deal. She feels big corporations aren't sitting around plotting ways to make their products self-destruct. Instead, it's our own inherent desire to purchase the latest technology or fancy new model rather than the most durable product. In other words, more often than not, a consumer opts to buy cheaper stuff. I think we're all guilty of this at times. If I see a desk for $150 versus a similar one for $700, there's a good chance I'm going with the cheaper version. I'm a sucker for a good deal. And I don't always consider the fact that the desk I chose might deteriorate faster under the weight of all my books. 
and you have a lot of books. But I get it. The argument is many products aren't specifically designed to fail, but they are designed to be cheaper and therefore do become obsolete faster. For example, metal parts might be swapped out for plastic, screws swapped out for snaps, all little changes that make a product more affordable and desirable to a consumer and unfortunately less durable over time. Supporters of this theory also say size is something to take into consideration. I might date myself here, but remember how bulky cell phones were back in the 90s? I do, though I didn't have one yet. Uh, and you're right. Now people want the smallest, sleekest model, something they can carry around in their pocket. Exactly. Back in the day, you could change out the battery of a cell phone when it started to slow down. You weren't replacing it with an entirely new device like we are today. But that also meant larger parts, things the consumer presumably decided they no longer wanted. Fast fashion is another industry experts point to when they discount planned obsolescence. Some stores try to keep up with the latest fashion trends by putting out anywhere between 12 to 24 different collections a year. They argue it's because the consumer's taste changes almost monthly. And because they manage to keep the cost of most of their clothing below the $100 mark, the consumer keeps coming back for more. The fast fashion industry is a great example of a chicken or egg scenario. Is the fact that consumers want the hottest new looks driving the market? Or is it the market telling consumers they need the latest look? It's this what-came-first conundrum that makes it hard to know who to blame for planned obsolescence. Let's dive further back into the fast fashion industry to get a better understanding. According to Dr. Vertica Bardwaj and Dr. Ann Fairhurst, professors of consumer ethics and the retail environment, a trend started around 1989 in the UK. That's when shoppers began caring less about the general fads and more about curating their own unique styles. This made mass-produced trends cheaper, driving the cost of the entire clothing market down. By the 1990s, manufacturers were pumping out trendy, cheap, and poorly made products weekly. This was thanks in part to new technologies and, of course, low-paid laborers in overseas factories. In the past, many garments were designed to last for decades. Over time, they could easily be passed down or adjusted by a seamstress. Now, when something no longer fits, it's usually discarded, likely because the cost of alterations would surpass the price of the item itself. But I'm not so sure it's fair to only blame the consumer. As we mentioned earlier with the GM model of marketing, some companies are guilty of psychological obsolescence. They're constantly trying to convince us we need the newest fashion trend or electronics to stay relevant and maintain our status in society. And the automotive industry may be guilty of planned obsolescence as well. Nowadays, the older the vehicle model, the harder it is to find replacement parts. Many cars are also equipped with features that have short shelf lives or require incompatible software updates. Sometimes the only option left is to update to a newer model. Absolutely. 
And look, cars and fashion may just be items the consumer will always want to update, planned obsolescence or not, mainly because we connect them to status. What about objects that don't carry any social status, but we're still forced to buy more of? Molly, how many times have you pulled a condiment from the fridge and thought, uh, it's past its expiration date, but can I still use it on my sandwich? I'm not ashamed, I'll admit, once or twice. Yeah, me too. But did you know those best buy or sell by dates are not set by the government or the FDA? You're kidding. Nope. But according to a 2013 study, you and I fall into the 90% of Americans who had no idea those dates weren't always there for our health. They're actually put there by manufacturers or the grocery stores to let you know the item might not taste or smell as fresh as it once did. The only thing that is regulated is baby formula. Rosemary Trout was the Director of Culinary Arts and Food Science at Drexel University. In 2019, she explained to Philadelphia Magazine, there's a big difference between food spoilage and safety. And those dates are there to protect the brand, not you. But that ambiguity might be intentional. When we see those dates inching closer on the items in our fridge, we sometimes throw them away before it's necessary. Well, that's not to say the food wouldn't have gone bad eventually, but we're being swayed to buy products sooner than we need to, which could be seen as another form of planned obsolescence. According to Trout, this expiration labeling dates back to the middle of the 20th century, when there was a surge in people buying processed foods. She points out, you won't find an expiration date on bananas or potatoes, produce you'd pick from a bin yourself. That's because they have an apparent shelf life, unlike, say, canned sodas, which we wouldn't consider tossing away on our own. Same goes for other products that don't spoil like fresh food. Things like toothpaste, baby wipes, soaps, and lotions. While they might lose their potency or, in some cases, cause irritation, they can often survive a lot longer than their stamped dates. Again, that's hard to pin on the consumer. It's not like I'm always looking for the hottest new toothpaste to upgrade to. Although, Instagram ads always seem to think I'm in the market for some. <laughs> Lucky you, mine are all exercise programs. Uh, more on that in our next episode. But first, let's get to the product we've all been wondering about. The one accused of being the holy grail of planned obsolescence. You know it, you've complained about it. That's right, the smartphone. Most mobile electronics are considered easily breakable, hard to repair, and in constant need of updating. A study in Europe found that most mobile devices are discarded after 2.7 years. So again, we're forced to ask ourselves, is that because of the product or the consumer? Let's take journalist Catherine Rampell's story as a case study. In September 2013, Apple released its newest models, the iPhone 5S and 5C. It was around the same time that Rampell, then a reporter for the New York Times, noticed her iPhone 4 was getting a bit sluggish. Rampell wasn't sure if it was just her paranoia. She was, however, certain her battery was draining faster than usual. 
When she called a friend who was a tech analyst, they believed that the new operating systems being pushed to new and old phones were draining the battery. Rampal was left with a few options. Get a new phone from another company and start from scratch, since iPhones can be hard to transfer data from. Pay $79 to replace her current battery or get a brand new iPhone. What did Rampel do? To be honest, she doesn't say, but we can imagine she eventually upgraded to the new iPhone. The question is, did she want to? Or did Apple leave her with no choice? Over the years, Apple has faced a smattering of lawsuits from users who claim to feel cornered into upgrading their devices. In 2018, French authorities actually threw the book at Apple, arguing that the company engaged in deceptive business practices. Apple was even ordered by the General Directorate for Competition Policy, Consumer Affairs and Fraud Control to pay a $27 million fine. Except Apple never admitted to intentionally rendering their products obsolete. In a public statement, they claimed, quote, First and foremost, we have never and would never do anything to intentionally shorten the life of any Apple product or degrade the user experience to drive customer upgrades. Our goal has always been to create products that our customers love, and making iPhones last as long as possible is an important part of that. Instead, they claim that on an old phone, these updates required more processing power than the battery could support. So they slowed the phones down to prevent them from crashing and breaking completely. However, the statement may have backfired. According to the New York Times, many users believe this was a roundabout admittance that Apple had used planned obsolescence to degrade their old products. But Niraj Chokshi, a business reporter for the New York Times, disagrees. He defends the corporation, saying, if Apple explicitly said that they injected code into older iPhones to slow them down because new ones came out, that would be admission. All it is admitting to now is trying to keep the old iPhones running for longer. Okay, so let's break it down. Are CEOs sitting around a boardroom looking for ways to make their products fail, just like the Phoebus cartel did back in the 1920s? Well, maybe not. But are they manipulating us into buying into new trends and throwing away our still-good yogurt, as is the case with psychological obsolescence? Now that's very possible. So can we say concretely the consumer is to blame? No. Can we say companies are still using planned or psychological obsolescence today? Maybe to a degree. But I think it's a multifaceted conspiracy. Like you said, a chicken or an egg scenario. Because of that, I don't think any single party is to blame. Well, when we dive into our next theory, it won't matter whether the consumer or retailer is to blame. Because the nasty truth is, independent of who's responsible, planned obsolescence may be leading to the destruction of our planet. Coming up, the dark side of consumer culture. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Now back to the story. In the early 1930s, New York real estate broker Bernard London pitched a very controversial concept, making planned obsolescence a legal requirement and bailing America out of its floundering economy. At the time, it probably didn't seem like the worst idea. A rapid turnover of goods was a surefire way to create more jobs and accelerate our technological evolution. London probably didn't imagine his proposal would take off without government intervention, that the products we buy, like cell phones and laptops, would become a conduit to purchasing other merchandise, and on a massive scale. And he almost certainly didn't think about the environmental footprint it would leave behind, or the amount of resource depletion, energy consumption, waste, and pollution it would create. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Consumer culture and planned obsolescence are leading to the destruction of our planet. On the southern coast of Ghana, massive container ships from the United States and Western Europe dock along the port of Tema. Inside them are piles of used computers, phones, gaming consoles, you name it. Most of them are devices the consumer thought they'd recycled properly. But the reality is 80% of used electronics are either thrown away, incinerated, informally recycled, or end up on these cargo ships in developing countries. Shipping e-waste is regulated according to the Basel Convention on Hazardous Wastes, But many merchants declare the goods as secondhand consumer products under the guise of closing the world's digital gap. Ghana, in particular, gets at least 150,000 tons of these quote-unquote secondhand electronics every year, although some believe that number is much higher. After docking at the port of Tema, those plastic bricks make their way about 20 miles west to the nation's capital, Craw. Or more specifically, to the Agbugblashi dump, a dystopic landfill with a consistent layer of toxic smoke emitted from burning and destroying these products. The worst part? Agbugblashi is home to over 80,000 people, some of Accra's poorest residents and immigrants from neighboring nations. Abdrahaman Dauda is one of them. He was interviewed by Bloomberg in 2019 and told reporter Peter Jung that he was unable to find a job in his home country of Niger, which is how he ended up in Ghana trying to survive. 
Along with 10,000 other laborers, he would sift through millions of tons of discarded electronics, as many of these have circuit boards that contain small amounts of copper, platinum, silver, and even gold that can be resold. Metals from these old products, like lead and mercury, are released when the e-waste is burned, and they're either inhaled or leaked into the local food and water supply. Every day, Dauda and his co-workers put their health on the line, inhaling fumes that cause respiratory problems, headaches, and chronic nausea. And for very little pay. On a good day, Dauda earns about 40 Ghanaian sadies. That's around four U.S. dollars as of December 2022, which he puts towards buying his own taxi cab. On other days, when the pickings are slim, he earns nothing. Dauda's story is just one of the millions who are directly affected by the e-waste problem, a problem that might be exacerbated by planned obsolescence or our own greed. In 2021, the WEEE Forum, a global waste management nonprofit, estimated 62.8 million tons of electronics were tossed away by consumers. According to some estimates, that's a mound of trash that weighs slightly more than the Great Wall of China. And even if we try to recycle it, much of it ends up on people's doorstep. Regions in Asia are falling victim to the e-waste problem as well. In fact, 70% of the world's electronics were quietly exported to Beijing, China, where rivers overflowed with toxic chemicals. Locals were found to have extreme levels of lead in their bloodstreams. In January 2018, Beijing finally did something about it. They banned nations from importing more e-waste into their region. But that didn't stop many merchants who just rerouted their outdated goods to smaller nations with even fewer resources to handle the overflow of toxic materials. And if you think your fashion addiction is exempt from this environmental fallout, think again. That industry is responsible for more than 10% of the world's carbon emissions today. Believe it or not, polyester, one of fast fashion's predominant staples, is derived from petroleum. And where there are fossil fuels, there's the potential to burn off carbon dioxide. In 2015 alone, Polyester manufacturers emitted 282 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, all at the cost of fulfilling our insatiable desire for new trends. What's worse, about 85% of textiles from the U.S. end up back in landfills each year. Something we should keep in mind next time we're looking for that one-time outfit for Coachella. You also may not know that synthetic materials, like polyester, shed microplastics. And every time you wash those fast fashion pieces, tiny bits are released into the soapy water, eventually making their way to the oceans and polluting ecosystems. According to Bloomberg, Australian scientists found the ocean floor consists of about 9 to 15 million tons of these tiny plastic particles, and 35% of them can be tied directly to the textile industry. Food waste carries its own set of unique problems. It takes a vast amount of resources for factory farming to keep up its modern day pace. 
For example, one eight ounce steak requires 920 gallons of water. And that's considering the average cow consumes 499,021 gallons of water in its lifetime. Plus, these animals are packed together. And according to a March 2022 report from PBS NewsHour, their bursts of collective belching produce 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. There's also this fact. Crowded conditions can spark widespread disease. And in large concentrations, animal waste leads to toxic runoff in water supplies. Nevertheless, we forge ahead, all to keep up with the best-buy dates on our yogurts and toss-too-soon frozen nuggets. So, while Carter may have seemed a bit dramatic before, I think it's clear. Consumer culture and planned obsolescence certainly aren't helping the planet. The data's all there. We might not think much of it when we throw an old pair of polyester pants into the trash, or toss an old smartphone especially when we believe it's being recycled. But the truth is we don't have the infrastructure to sustain how rapidly we buy and dispose of goods. I will say this is something many corporations are starting to address. Currently, Google's Project Aura is creating a new smartphone that will make the replacement of parts much easier, encouraging the consumer to keep their devices longer. Tesla has spoken about reclaiming spent batteries from its vehicles to reuse for home energy. They are also developing ways to upgrade the software in their cars while they charge overnight, rather than having users update to a new model every couple of years. And in 2016, Apple created a robot to quickly dismantle products for a quicker, more effective recycling program. But I'm not sure these measures are enough. You could argue that Bernard London was onto something when he talked about government regulation of planned obsolescence, but he came at it from the wrong angle. What we may need is for the government to put more protections in place against the harmful disposal of consumer goods. As it stands, the United States has no federal laws on how to manage e-waste. On the other hand, the EU has some of the strictest e-waste laws in the world. And yet, in 2018, they only properly recycled about 35% of their electronic goods, roughly 15 percentage points more than the global average at the time. Some nations are trying to take the lead on the e-waste initiative. As of 2019, a German-based development company was working on a $5.5 million project that would create a more effective recycling system in Agbogblashi specifically. The budget also allotted for building health clinics for the local workers. For the most part, though, it's on these big corporations to make a change. According to a 2019 study, If companies extended the lifespan of their electronics by just one year, it would reduce the same amount of carbon emissions as removing two million vehicles from the road per year. And that's just one statistic. Imagine what would happen if all consumer industries were transformed. The one plus side to this is you and I can do something about it. Next time you feel the urge to buy a new product simply because your current one is outdated, take a moment to consider the cost. While that endorphin rush can be sweet, 
A life satisfaction survey taken in over 65 countries found this consumerist lifestyle is eating away at our happiness. People are working longer hours to keep up with the consumption of goods, and they're incurring more debt. They're also spending less time with family, friends, and the community as a whole. This will make sense the next time you ask your kids to hand over their phones at the dinner table. So, Molly, let me ask you this. Had the Phoebus cartel not met in secret in the 1920s, do you think you'd still be considering updating your phone before it was time? Probably not, Carter. To be honest, I think this is one global conspiracy many of us are guilty of falling for. I knew I could convince you. Now, the question is, will we ever be able to escape it? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lori Marinelli, edited by Wendelin Sabroso and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, Researched by Sapphire Williams, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.